very much, praise team, for those very meaningful lyrics. It's just a blessing to sing words like that with you and to praise and extol the Lord and to sing about Him and learn about Him. So I'm very grateful. Uh, A friend of mine in college and seminary went through the hardest time in his life in his first church. Uh, Things were going very well until a falling out occurred with the most influential man in the church. Uh, It just so happened that I, I knew the man. I hadn't seen my friend for quite a while. We met in Grand Rapids one day at a conference, and I said to him, How Dan? How's Dan? And he's just crestfallen. Of all people, why would you ask about Dan? And then he went in to what had happened. I don't know the details about the falling out. I don't know if my friend who was a young pastor could have uh, handled things maybe better. But eventually the man left and took 30 people with him. When you're a new pastor in a fairly average-sized church, that's, that's tough. And then because it was a small town, wherever he and his wife went, they would meet these people, whether it was at the store or a shop or at the gas station, they would meet them, and the meetings were a constant reminder of the strained relationships and the pain that had rocked that church. One day, my friend said to me, he was having his devotions in the book of Isaiah. I don't know where, but he said God taught him this lesson. Here's what he said. The trials we go through are never wasted experiences, but always God's preparation for future ministry. The trials we go through are never wasted experiences, but always God's preparation for future ministry. He was still in that trial. But he was trusting God that it was a preparation for future usefulness. As I thought about that, uh, it uh, uh, connected very much with something that Pastor uh, uh, W.H. Griffith Thomas had to say about Joseph. You may not be familiar with that name, but W.H. Griffith Thomas was co-founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. He never had the opportunity to teach one class because he died before the seminary that he co-founded opened up. But he said in his study of the life of Joseph these very important words. From the human side, Joseph's suffering was due to injustice on the part of Potiphar and ingratitude on the part of the butler who forgot him in prison. From the divine side, these years were permitted for the purpose of training and preparing Joseph for the great work that lay before him. There's the lesson, isn't it? The trials we go through are never wasted experiences, but they are always preparation for future usefulness. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this morning? As painful as it may be in your life right now, do you believe that God is preparing 
you. Well, this morning, as we continue in the life of Joseph, we come to chapter 41. And what we learn this morning is that a fruitful life is a useful life. Please remember this. If you will determine, I'm going to live a fruitful life, no matter what the circumstances may be, in God's timing, your life will be useful. Do you believe that? Are you with me this morning? We're going to see that in the life of Joseph. Now I have two questions today. What does God do to accomplish His purposes? And what is our place in His plan? That's what Genesis 41 is all about. And I'd like to take a moment and just pray together while you're turning to that passage in God's Word. If you're using the chair Bible, it is about page 40. And as you turn there to Genesis 41, let's pray together, shall we? Father, you have put us on this earth as believers for a purpose. We are here and not in heaven because it is your desire we should be useful. And you will do whatever is necessary to prepare us to be a useful servant. That's what you did in the life of Joseph. That's what you did in the life of that pastor friend of mine. That's what you're doing in our lives. Help us now to submit our lives to you that you may make us useful servants. For Jesus' sake we ask it. And all God's people said together, Amen. Let's notice, first of all, as we open up this chapter, that God accomplishes His plans through His sovereign control. Look with me at verses 1 through 7 of Genesis 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. How many of you have had a dream so vivid you awoke and thought, wow, I'm glad that wasn't true? And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears were swallowed up, swallowed up the seven plump, full ears, and Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. Now what are we seeing God is teaching Pharaoh here and teaching us? We are seeing this principle that God accomplishes His plans through His sovereign control. What does it mean that God is sovereign? Well, I think one of the best definitions I've ever seen and simple definitions comes from the pastor and Bible scholar Millard Erickson. And this is what he says, God's sovereignty is God's supremacy and control over all that occurs to accomplish His purposes. Do you believe that? What is God's sovereignty? It is His supremacy and control over all that occurs to accomplish His purposes. Do you know what I wish? I wish as a young man growing up in a Bible-believing church, I had been taught more about the sovereignty of God. 
I wish that I had. Because it is so very, very helpful and so comforting, especially in our different difficult times. Now, God does two things in this dream to reveal His sovereign control. Here's the first one. God controlled Egypt's economy. Egypt's economy was based on farming. Grain was the lifeblood, grain production was the lifeblood of Egypt. In fact, Egypt at the time was called the granary of the world. And because there was plenty of grain, there was always plenty of cattle. So no wonder this dream about the economy of Egypt would include cattle and would include stalks of grain. Now the reason for this productivity was the mighty Nile River ran right through Egypt. There it is. And it watered the entire valley of Egypt. Do you know it watered it a width that could extend from a mile to 20 miles wide? This green strip that you see here that was the result of the mighty Nile overflowing its banks, it was called the black land. It was so rich. The soil was so deep. And so Egypt, when there was little rainfall, would experience famines from time to time, but never did they hardly ever experience a severe famine. Yet what is God revealing? God is revealing He was going to take over Egypt's entire economy. Do you know when Richard Nixon was uh, president, he said the American economy was so strong only a genius could wreck it. You know, we could say the Egyptian economy was so strong only God could wreck it. And that was what he was planning to do. By the way, uh, what is Pharaoh doing the king of Egypt in this dream? What's he doing? Look at verse 1. What's he doing? He's standing there. There, the most powerful man in the world stood as God was taking over the economy. Now you need to understand that Pharaoh was considered a god. He was called Horus. And it was his responsibility given by the chief gods to maintain and govern this very land. So here stands the most powerful person in the world who is considered a God Himself and He stands by helplessly as God takes over His economy. That's the sovereignty of God. And then notice the second thing. In this dream, after it was over, God confused Egypt's ruler and wise men. Look at verse 8. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Do you know, Egyptians prided themselves on interpreting dreams. They actually had a training center called the House of Life. 
In that training center were guidebooks for interpreting dreams. You could get out the books and they would give you instructions on discerning puns and symbols. Do you know this dream is actually quite simple? It's very, very clear. A grain was abundant in Egypt, cattle were abundant, the Egyptian economy was based on those two things. So it's clear this dream is about the economy, and it's very clear there are going to be some very good years that are coming, and then some bad. It's really a simple dream. Why could not these wise men interpret a simple dream? Here's the answer. God, in His sovereignty, withheld the key. Do you know what the key to this dream is? It's the number seven. In fact, if you looked carefully, the number seven occurs six times. Seven cows, seven cows, seven cows, seven stalks of grain, seven stalks of grain, seven stalks of grain. The key to the dream is seven, and the seven is referring to years, isn't it? So the dream was saying the economy would be really good for seven years, and then really bad for seven years. But here's the issue. How do you interpret the dream? If you don't understand, seven refers to years. You remember the dreams in chapter 40? Three days, three, 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 three. Those refer to days. Now here they refer to seven years. How do you know? That's the key to the dream. By the way, let me just stop for just a moment here and quote for you 1 Corinthians one twenty one. By wisdom, the world knew not God. Right? By wisdom, the world knew not God. God in His sovereignty withheld the key to this dream because He was going to reveal it to Joseph and Joseph alone. Look very, very carefully. God was going to control Egypt's economy. God confused Egypt's ruler, the wise men who had been to the house of life, who should have been able to interpret the dreams. But God in His sovereignty says, I'm raising up a man who will be given the answer to the dream. That is my sovereign purposes. Let me ask you this question. Why does God choose to exhibit His sovereignty over the nation of Egypt now? Why now? I'm glad you asked that question. Because the answer was given to Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, in Genesis 15, 13, and 14, let me read it for you. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. 
But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Why is God now extending his sovereignty over the nation Israel? What's the answer? It was prophesied. It was prophesied. God was planning to take his people down to Egypt as he told Abraham. There they would be protected, nurtured, multiply. And then when he would reveal himself in wonderful ways, he would bring them out with great possessions. Remember the definition of God's sovereignty? What is it? God's supremacy and control over all that occurs to accomplish his purposes. May I say to you this morning, when God prepares to accomplish His plans, everything is at His disposal. When God decides, I'm going to accomplish my will, every single thing is at His disposal. If you are here today and you have ever doubted, is God really sovereign? This should put those doubts to rest. The most powerful, prosperous, educated nation on earth was putty in the hands of God, and God is totally in control of all the events that impact your life and impact my life. May I hear an amen to that this morning? Now, where does Joseph fit into all of this? If this is how God accomplishes his purposes, then how does Joseph fit in? And here's the way he fits in. Second thing God does to accomplish his plans is he accomplishes his plans through useful servants. When God gets ready to accomplish what he has determined to do, what he does is he finds and uses a useful person. You remember in the book of Esther, Mordecai comes to Esther and he says to her, Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther, who knows whether God has raised you up for this very time because through you He will accomplish His purposes. God had prepared Esther to be His instrument and God had done the same with Joseph. What have we learned about him in the four chapters we've studied so far? Well, he has gone through three tests. He has experienced opposition, Temptation and discouragement. By the way, have you had those three tests in your life? Opposition, temptation, discouragement. Joseph has gone through that time and time again, but he passed them all. And now after 13 years of testing, Joseph is 30 years old and he's now ready to be useful in God's plan. In fact, look over with me at verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why is that there? Why at this point are we told 
He was 17 when this whole thing began. Now he's 30. It's been 13 years because God was in the process of training him and preparing him. And now at 30 years of age, after having passed the test, Joseph is ready. Let me ask you a question this morning. How do we know if we are passing the test in our lives and God has prepared us to be useful. As I stand before you today, how would I know that I've passed the test in my life and I'm at the place where God says, you're prepared, you're ready to be useful. Well, there's a wonderful verse in Second Timothy that the Apostle Paul gives to us. It's interesting because it is clearly in his mind connected to the Joseph story. And I want you to see what this is that the Apostle Paul says for us. I'm going to ask you to join me as we get to the last two phrases. Listen to what God's Word says. 2 Timothy 2, 20, 21. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. Now join me. Useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Do you know what the very next phrase is? Flee youthful lusts. A clear allusion to Genesis 39. It is very possible that when Paul gives us these verses, in the back of his mind, he has Joseph, who was tested, who passed those tests, therefore became prepared and he was useful to the master of the house ready for every good work. This is what God desires for us that we be useful to the master of the house. What's involved in that? How do we know if we have become useful? How do I know? Well, that's the rest of Genesis 41. Now, there are 57 verses in this chapter, and how do you preach 57 verses in one sermon? Well, the answer is you don't. And so, we're going to just begin... By the way, uh, the Joseph narrative, 13 chapters, the longest narrative in all the book of Genesis. This is the longest chapter in the Joseph narrative. So what we learn here is critical because this is the point at which God begins to fulfill the plan that He gave to Joseph 13 years earlier. And this is how we become a prepared vessel fit for the Master's use. Let's look at the first one this morning, and then next week we'll pick up in the rest of the story. 
Here is the first quality. Our priority is God's glory alone. That is the first quality of a servant prepared for the master's use. Look at verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about, I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. When Joseph is brought in before Pharaoh, he is facing a very, very superstitious man. Astrology, necromancy, interpreting dreams and omens were very big business in Egypt. And here's what Pharaoh believes in his mind as this young man who is supposedly the interpreter of dreams comes before him. He believes that he is endowed with innate magical powers. In fact, in verse 15 when he says, I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream you can interpret it. The idea is there. You only have to hear a dream to be able to interpret it. Pharaoh is saying to Joseph, you are really good. You're really good. You don't have to go to the house of life. You don't have to get out the guidebooks. You don't have to read the instructions on interpreting puns and symbols. You just hear the dream and presto, the magic kicks in and you have it. Can I pause for a moment? Very hard to resist flattery, isn't it? Very, very hard to resist flattery. Human nature craves praise. After the 4th of July parade, we went down to Lower Harbor for the food fest. And uh, I met a little four-year-old girl there while her mother, grandmother was talking to my wife. Uh, the little girl jumped up on a rock and began to show me how she could jump off the rock and how far she could jump off. And I want to tell you, she was proud of her jumping ability. And the more I praised it, the more she ate it up. And as I watched her, it dawned on me, I'm watching myself. 
We all crave attention, credit, being told how wonderful we are, how great we are. Joseph has suffered a lot. Injustice after injustice after injustice. At least he ought to be able to take a little credit, right? At least he ought to be able to say to Pharaoh, you don't know what I've been through and how faithful I have been. He ought to be able to take a little credit. But what does he say? Verse 16. It is not in me God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. If we could look at the original language, we would find in Hebrew two words. Joseph spoke two words. He literally said, not I, God. Not I, God. It's actually a little bit confrontational. One Bible teacher says it is almost explosive. And why does Joseph respond so quickly and so forcefully to a king who has the authority to put him right back where he just came from? Why does Joseph respond in this explosive way, Pharaoh, not I, God? I think the best answer, the best answer comes from Pastor Harry Ironside, who pastored for many years in Chicago, here's what he said. The servant is nothing. God is everything. The servant is nothing. God is everything. My old prof, Howard Hendricks, one day was speaking in a meeting and afterwards a man came up to him and said, uh, Dr. Hendricks, would you pray that I will become nothing? He said, no, I will never pray that. He said, take that by faith. The servant is nothing. God is everything. Brothers and sisters, Take that by faith. Take that by faith. Where would Joseph have been without God? Well, he would have been a field slave, lost among thousands of others, brought down to Egypt, alone and forgotten to history. By the way, did you notice his resume? Look back at verse 12 and notice the resume of Joseph as he stands before the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Notice how he was described. A young Hebrew was there with us, said the butler who had been with him in prison, a servant of the captain of the guard. Notice this resume. He's young. He's a foreigner. He's a slave. And he was a prisoner. Um, how many of you would say that's a rather substandard resume? Uh, Pharaoh, here's your man. 
He's going to be the key to interpreting this dream that you've had, and it's going to reveal God's plan for the future. Pharaoh, here's the resume of this man. He's young. He's a foreigner. And by the way, he's a shepherd, and we knew that the Egyptians hated shepherds. He's a slave, and he's a prisoner. That's Joseph. By the way, why is God so protective about His own glory? Why is that such a big deal with God? Well, let me give you a couple of verses that I think will help. Here's one from Isaiah 42, verse 8. Would you read it with me? I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. There are many other places in Isaiah where a similar thought is found. God alone is the great I am. And one of the reasons that all false religions are such a monstrous evil is they rob God of the glory that He alone deserves. Let me show you another verse. This one is in 1 Samuel, and God comes to Eli. He was the priest, and God says, Eli, you've allowed your sons to rob me of glory. That was the one thing that Eli had done wrong. He permitted his sons to rob God of His glory. And because that happened, God changed His entire plans for Eli and his descendants. Look at 1 Samuel 2.30. Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, Far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. How did Joseph get this so deep into his heart that when the Pharaoh said to him, I want to flatter you a little bit. All you have to do is hear the dream and you automatically have the answer. How did he get this so deep into his heart that he said to Pharaoh two words, not I, God, not I, God. Joseph got that way the same way we do. God humbled him. God humbled him. Look again at verse 12. Here's what Joseph is, a young Hebrew, a servant of the captain of the guard. He's young, he's a foreigner, he is a slave, he is a prisoner. Let me ask you, can you go any lower? Can you send anybody any lower in before Pharaoh to say, I'm your man? You see, God had been humbling Joseph for 13 years. And now when it's time to take him to the top, here's what God knows. Joseph will not rob me of glory. Joseph will not rob me of glory.
God took him to the bottom so that when it was his time to take him to the top, Joseph would not rob God of his glory. Do you know one of the reasons we are often so unusable is we rob God of his glory? We're like that little girl down at Lower Harbor showing off. We're full of our own wisdom, our own opinions, our own way. We push ahead of others. We can be very condescending to others. We think we are always right. And so here's what God does. God takes us down to show us who we really are. He takes us down, sometimes to the very bottom, so we can see who we really are. Pastor James McDonald from Chicago has a wonderful principle. He draws the principle from James 4 and verse 6. I want you to read the principle with me because it's what God was doing with Joseph and God does the very same thing with you and me. Let's read Pastor McDonald's principle. Please join me. With God... The way up is down. James 4, 6. God humbles the proud, but He exalts the humble. With God, the way up is down. Listen, God has no problem exalting us to where He wants us to be. That is not a problem at all. By the way, did you notice how quickly God exalted Joseph? Did you notice that in verse 14? Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Thirteen long years of injustice after injustice. Several years in prison. One morning he wakes up and God says, Joseph, it's time. And notice how quickly it happens. He was called. They quickly brought him out. He shaves, changes his clothes, and he's standing before Pharaoh. Listen, when God moves, things can happen very, very fast. In one verse... God takes Joseph from prison to the palace. I may have never told you this. Twice in my life I was planning to marry the wrong woman. And very fortunately, God in His grace intervened and kept those relationships from happening. The first one I broke up. The second one, years later, she broke up. I was devastated. What I didn't realize was back in my hometown, God was preparing a young woman for me who would be the best partner for my life that I could possibly have. And I had no idea that was happening. But when I was 30 years old and met Ellen and then got married, it happened so fast, I kind of just was sort of starstruck. I said, I do, and I thought... How did this happen? And when God gets ready to fulfill His will, things can happen very, very fast. Listen, God has no problem exalting us. Does He have a problem humbling us? 
God has no problem exalting us. Does He have a problem humbling us? Yes, He does. Listen carefully. If we push ourselves up, God will take us down. If we push ourselves up, God will take us down. If we exalt ourselves, He will humble us. But if we humble ourselves, He will exalt us. As we come to the end of this part of the message, we have to ask this question, how do we know if God's glory alone is our priority? If God takes a person who has been prepared to be useful and the number one quality in being useful for the master is that our priority is God's glory alone then how do we know if we are indeed living for God's glory alone and brothers and sisters Joseph provides the answer It's very interesting when you compare what he says to Pharaoh in chapter 41, verse 16, with what he says in chapter 40, verse 8, to his prison inmates. In both cases, Joseph gives glory to God. In fact, it is so obvious that I'm surprised that I've never seen this before. Look what he said in prison in Genesis 40 and verse 8. Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. And then look what he said in the palace in chapter 41 verse 16. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Have you ever seen this before? If you believe in the sovereignty of God, you will glorify Him in prison as well as in the palace. That's how you know if God's glory is your number one priority. You're in the prison, the time of suffering, the time of preparation. And you're glorifying God. And then He takes you out of the prison and into the palace. And you're glorifying God. And this is the answer to whether you know you're living for His glory or not. Whether you have really been prepared through all that you've been through to be useful to the master of the house. Let's bow together, shall we?
as we wait before the Lord. Remember these words from Pastor Harry Ironside. The servant is nothing. God is everything. And God will do whatever He has to do until we learn that lesson. Until we let God be God in our lives. And until we say, not I, God. Not I, God. Whether we're hurting, the pain is so deep, or whether we're in the palace where all is going well, it is the glory of God that is our highest priority. Some of you are in the prison house right now. And it's painful. Are you glorifying God? Others of you have entered in to the palace. And it's wonderful. Are you glorifying God? That's the test. May God help us. May God help us. Lord, we love you today. You're letting us be a part of your plans. The great I Am who will not share his glory with another has brought us into his family has prepared us and trained us so that we can be useful to Him. And someday will take us to the heavenly palace. It's an inestimable privilege to walk with this Savior and to be servants in His hands. And teach us now how to be useful as he has called us to be, for Jesus' sake. Amen.